Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in this episode, we are going to explore the story of the Kalamazoo Hustlers and the Gold Rush. It is uh, quite a fascinating story that came out of Kalamazoo, Michigan. So we're going to venture back in time to the year of 1897. So come along and join me. Now, the information in this episode is coming from an article written by Brent Coates of the Kalamazoo Public Library staff, and it was published in December of 2022. And Mr. Coates did a tremendous amount of research in putting the details of this story together, and it can be found on the local history section in the kpl.gov website about Kalamazoo history. And I'll put the link to this article in the podcast description if you want to read the entire thing. And it's a fascinating chapter of local history where some Kalamazoo men decided to take part in the gold rush up in Alaska. Now, typically, most people think of the California gold rush, which actually had its first announcement in 1848. And it didn't really have an impact until 1849. Thus, you have the name the 49ers that uh, moved over to California in search of gold. There's a whole story behind that. And several people from southwest Michigan did venture on out west to California in the Sierra Nevada mountains to find gold. They even went as far north as Seattle and Oregon in search of gold during the California gold rush. However, this story takes place in 1897 when there was an announcement of gold in Alaska, and this sparked a group of Kalamazoo entrepreneurs to unite and make plans to seek their fortunes up in the Yukon. While the group was popularly known as the Kalamazoo Hustlers, the official name was the Kalamazoo Mining and Prospecting Company. And the founding members of this company were William A. Doyle, who was the general manager, Arthur W. Rickman, who was the treasurer, and James K. Evers, who was the secretary. With Dole Evers and Stuart L. Campbell as managing directors, and James Dole, Fred Schneid, and Arthur Pearson as the directors. So shortly before the company's departure, five others joined the group. There was a Henry Den Bleeker, James Ensing, Jerome H. Fisher, Henry Greendike, all from Kalamazoo, and also Fred Longwell from Pawpaw. Now each member had to put in $800 for the purchase of provisions to sustain them until they were established on a claim in the Klondike. And only a person going to the Klondike could hold stock in the company, as it was defined in the Articles of Association that they sent to the Secretary of State in Lansing. So essentially, if you wanted to be a part of this venture, you had to go to the Klondike. So you couldn't just throw in money and wait for the financial gain. You had to take part in the activity. So there's a great photo in this article, and it shows the members that I mentioned here. And it shows the Kalamazoo Mining and Prospecting Company as they were preparing to depart for Alaska on 26th of January, 1898. And this is part of the photography collection at the Kalamazoo Library. 
So on January 26, which was the date they set for the group's departure, before that date, the purchase of 14 tons of provisions were acquired, and they planned to take them with them as they had been organized to do so. There was a Kalamazoo grocer, Eugene Welch, who arranged for the purchase of the food that they took with them. There was also Stuart L. Campbell, who traveled to Detroit to obtain the materials needed for the sawmill. So they intended to build a sawmill when they got there. He also picked up materials for electric lights that they took with them. Along with Arthur Rickman, Campbell arranged for other supplies. And among those supplies, it included 11 dogs. And all of these items were stored in Chicago, and they were to be collected when the group's train stopped there on the way west. So I suppose that they kept the 11 dogs there in proximity to where they were storing their supplies. It doesn't say whether they were for pulling dog sleds or not, but it seems like a lot of materials for 11 dogs to pull. Anyways, already in Kalamazoo, a freight car held part of the provisions and in this special car with banners on the sides that read Kalamazoo Hustlers and Root for the Klondike, the group left on a two-year trip. Each man on that train hoped that this trip would make them rich. So the first letters that were received from the people that went on this trip to people in Kalamazoo explained the group's arrival in Skagway, which was up in Alaska, and the preparations for the dangerous climb up to White's Pass. Their first challenge was the purchase of horses when they got there and the packing and hauling of what had become 40 tons of provisions. On the climb up, the hardships of walking and camping in snowstorms and the sight of dead prospectors along the way caused the first of the group, Jerome Fisher, to turn back and return to Kalamazoo. Within a month, the group that remained had successfully made it over White Pass with all their provisions intact. On May 1st, Evers wrote his wife that they had their camp set up on Lake Tagish with the sawmill in operation. For eight weeks, the hustlers sawed timber to build the boats needed for travel on the 30-mile river to where the gold fields were. And overall, the group's letters said all were well with no homesickness, and they had even begun to stake claims in good areas. By June, they had built two steamers, the Kalamazoo, and the Michigan, and they were testing them on the lake. Now, the use of a steamer on the Alaskan and Yukon rivers was not considered possible. The Kalamazoo hustlers made headlines when they launched their boats. On the day they went through the White Horse Rapids on 30 Mile River, Many others watched with amazement along the shore with Harry Den Biker, who was photographing the event. All went well until a smaller craft on a very crowded river cut in front of the Kalamazoo. Rather than hit the smaller craft, the pilot of the Kalamazoo turned without looking and smashed the steamer into a rock. Although the steamer was damaged and partially submerged, no one was injured and the food supply was saved. Using a centrifugal pump, William Doyle raised the steamer and did repairs on their ship. Fortunately, most of the heavier gear had been on the other ship that they called the Michigan, which successfully maneuvered through the rapids. On July 2nd, 
Both of the steamers docked at Dawson, and where the Kalamazoo men set up their base camp. They split into two groups, with one working their claims along the Indian River and the other at their claims on the Salmon River. James Evers was working on the Indian River claim when he suddenly became ill, and he died of dysentery in the Dawson Hospital, and he was buried in that town. Two months later, another member, Arthur Pearson, also became ill, but he made his way back to Kalamazoo. Now, William Doyle wrote in September of 1898 that they were all well, and the group had built a cabin above Dawson for their winter home. Within weeks, word reached home that the Kalamazoo hustlers had disbanded, and every man is now going it alone. And that was John Ensing, who had written to his wife that uh, both William and James Doyle were no longer connected with the Kalamazoo hustlers, and that William was accused of a charge of crookedness and was out on bail. William Doyle had collected money owed to the group, However, it was questioned if he had the right to do so after he had given it to James to hold, who lost it all in a drunken spree in a saloon. As he was uh, the general manager, the court found in his favor. Not long after this, Doyle faced charges of larceny and defrauding the Canadian government. Doyle had stolen equipment from the company, sold it for cash to help in an escape. He also collected money from other miners looking for transportation out of the Yukon. To avoid expenses, Doyle, in the name of the Kalamazoo Mining and Prospecting Company, had gained permission from the Canadian government to stay as guests of the Canadian police in their camps while he claimed to be blowing up rock hazards in the river. Doyle and those going with him did stay at the camps, but did not blow up rocks in the rivers. Through this deception, he was able to get out of Canada and escape jail and escape having to go to trial because they didn't catch him. Although he returned to Kalamazoo, Doyle denied the charges when he got back. However, Arthur Rickman returned a short time later and declared them true and produced signed statements and affidavits from other members of the company and the Canadian police to back up his statements. So Doyle was in a whole lot of trouble back home. In January of 1899, it saw a much reduced Kalamazoo Mining and Prospecting Company. Fred Schneed, Henry Greendike, Stuart Campbell, John Ensing, and Harry D. Bleicher were all that remained of the original group. After struggling to overcome the negative publicity gained from Doyle's scandals, the five tried to work claims together but found it difficult and gradually they drifted apart. Ownership of a building in Dawson, encouraged by William Doyle, had tied up their funds and prevented them from taking advantages of other more profitable ventures in the area. A poorly constructed wooden building, considered a fire risk, made its sale very difficult. Henry D. Bleicher, the secretary and treasurer, handled the group's business transactions and stayed in the Dawson area for that reason. Fred Schneid had already begun to end his connection with the company at the end of 1898, and Schneid put his machinist training to use and opened a machine shop in Dawson, and he built up a profitable business as a result. 
Henry Greendike went out on his own and worked his own claims and others for shares of claims. And Stuart Campbell tried to work a claim, but with small return coming from that claim, he decided to leave Alaska for the warmer climate of California. John Ensing said he enjoyed the rugged life in the country, but the death of his son and poor health brought him back to Kalamazoo. And then Harry Den Bleicher stayed in Dawson and went into the painting and paper hanging business with another Kalamazoo man who had traveled west on his own. And in 1900, when a new gold field opened in Nome, Alaska, both Schneid and de Bleicher joined in the excitement. Each briefly returned to Kalamazoo seeking financial support. Schneid to expand his machine shop business as well as get married and Den Bleicher to work a claim. Den Bleicher returned to Kalamazoo later that year and Schneid stayed for another 12 years up in the Alaska area. While others from Kalamazoo tried to make their fortunes in Alaska, none attracted as much attention as the original Kalamazoo hustlers. And that is the end of that story. And it's kind of an interesting chapter in American history because you have this whole group of Kalamazoo men that wanted to go off and do prospecting, and they all had a unique set of skills, it appears. Um, At least some of them did. Some of them were just young enough and uh, ambitious enough to try to take their hand in the mining and prospecting business and grab a pickaxe and dig, I suppose. But some of them had some skills like machinists and um, others had skills with working a lumber mill. And it's kind of sad that there was others among them that took advantage of the money from the group and hustled them. And Doyle certainly had a bad name among his comrades when he returned home. However, it's just a very interesting slice of Southwest Michigan history. And it is an example of some of the men that went off for prospecting when gold fever hit. And it wasn't the only time gold fever hit. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there was the big California gold rush that was the original one that saw thousands of people moving to California. In fact, the founding of California today is largely attributed to the gold rush and the people that moved there that established the early towns and infrastructure that built up California. Before that, it was really more of a wilderness territory, and there weren't that many people living there. There was a lot of Native Americans and Mexicans that had come up from Mexico and were still living in that territory. But the settlers from the European end of the American continent were far and few at the time. And then when the California gold rush happened, President Polk at the time made the announcement of gold being discovered in California after a lot of deliberation among members of his cabinet whether they were going to make this known because they knew that people would rush out there. And they also knew there'd be a lot of risk of people dying going out there because the traveling to California in that time period was pretty risky. But they weighed the risk and the rewards of having more of an established territory of California building up that could become a future state. And so they went with making the announcement and recommending that to President Polk, who did so. And, of course, the California gold rush, even though that the gold was originally discovered in 1848, It was that wave of people that came over in 1849 that gives us the name of 49ers that we know today. And, of course, we all know there's a football team out there 
in San Francisco named after the 49ers. So that's just an interesting little chapter of history, a little touch of gold fever, later development of the discovery of gold up in the Yukon, which created another generation of gold fever and men taking off to that adventure into the wild wilderness of Alaska coming out of Kalamazoo. And this story has an additional fascination for me personally because my great-grandfather, who lived in Rhode Island, went off to the Yukon Gold Rush, and he spent several years there prospecting and mining. And to my knowledge within our family, he never was successful with any gold being found. It was a story within our family. And my brother had done a lot of genealogy research and tracking down his history, even got copies of some of his original claims, which we explored and know they were no longer valid. He did uncover some photos of my grandfather in front of a log cabin that they had built up in the Yukon with a whole group of other prospectors. And um, he was Canadian French growing up. He spoke French fluently, and um, they were part of that uh, French-Canadian group that had gone up to the Yukon when the Yukon Gold Rush kind of happened around that period of time. So it's a little bit of a fascinating story to me to find a connection here in Kalamazoo locally to where I'm living now, where other people from this area also went off to explore gold up in the Yukon prospecting. And I'm sure there were probably thousands of men during that time across northern United States that said, hey, you know, we can endure the cold up here. We can make do with Alaska. I'd be real surprised to hear if there were any stories of people from Florida taking off to the Yukon. But that's just a little side note on that. So that's going to conclude today's podcast episode. If you liked today's episode, please take some time to leave a five-star review on whatever app that you are listening to out there, if it gives you the option to do so. And of course, a few kind words along with your review would go a long way to having more people find out about my podcast. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I can always be reached through there, through the contact form, and I'm always happy to hear from my listeners on suggestions and questions. And I do my very best to answer within my scope of knowledge. And when you have a question, and I also like the suggestions because sometimes it sends me in a great direction for a story that I otherwise would not have looked into. But that being said, until next time when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>